Thanks for tuning in to Cop with Comic. I'm Brian Cop, and we're with Comic Joe James. Joe James, how the hell are you? Hey, Brian. I am fine. How the hell are you? Um, I'm doing effing great. Thank you, Joe James. And we follow Joe James everywhere. It's Joe James 1065 across Twitter and Instagram, but also on the URL, the WW, as Letterman would say, it's JoeJames.net. And there can we learn about Literate Ape, where don't you write satire for them? I do. I write a weekly satirical column called The Minutes of Our Last Meeting for an online literary magazine called Literate Ape literate ape and so it, it, is that basically current i know you're a big current events guy so is that uh normally current events focused like this week the uh, speaker mccarthy is that his name yeah actually uh that's what i wrote about on wednesday yeah, I think, yeah I just retweet yeah yeah i just retweeted it so that comes out every wednesday yeah okay so it was a good good timing huh well <laughs> <laughs> it, you know it's always a mixed bag right it's like oh man it's a great timing i'm on top of this and i got something for it and it's also like wow this is a horrible thing going on in the world Yes. Yeah. And also you're kind of, behind, you know, you did it for Wednesday. You were nice and topical, but I mean, by the time next Wednesday rolls around, oh, I don't yeah. know, people, people scooped you by then because stuff has happened since. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I usually wait until sometimes I'll start writing it on Tuesday, but I usually wait till Wednesday morning to write it. And then it goes <laughs> out Wednesday afternoon. Oh my Lord. That's how topical his column is. Yeah. It's hot off the presses. <laughs> but I mean, even if, you know, because, you know, you're a comedian, you have a point of view and you actually teach this stuff pretty, pretty extensively. I think you know, even if people scoop you, you know, obviously Speaker McCarthy uh, happened and people reported on it first. You're always going to have the interesting take on it, right? Well, uh, you know, typically, I mean, uh, it depends on what you consider to be competition because it's, you know, there's so many satirical news outlets uh, online and there's also, you know, Saturday Live, uh, Daily Show, et cetera. Um, I, I try not to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> it would drive you nuts because you literally by then you do about about the hundredth joke. Right. And I've seen so many jokes about this thing and a lot of them are just super funny. You know, I follow just the comedians who've been on my podcast and I've retweeted so many because they managed to find a new angle. Like, are you do you have faith that by by next Wednesday morning you'll have that hundredth joke or do, are you already eyeing other stories that you might write about? Well, uh, that's a great question. Usually uh, I start thinking about it on Tuesday. And, and if I can, I might hook onto an idea and start writing it on Tuesday. If I don't have anything, I, I, my typical routine on Wednesday morning is to get up early. I'm usually up around six. And then uh, I'll go through the news. I'll uh, grab my laptop, go to a nearby coffee shop. I'm in Chicago. There's three, there's four in walking distance from where I live. And then uh, nice. what neighborhood uh, I'm in Bridgeport, which okay. is near White Sox Stadium. Oh, three or four good ones. Cup yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, 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 three of them are independent and the fourth one's a Starbucks. OK, you need some of both. Well, even the, the good independent drinks start say, tasting the same, in my opinion. Like I always have cafe mochas at some of these really indie places and they all taste great in the same exact way. And then Starbucks has a totally different way of doing it because it's probably crap, but you know, you're gonna get the same Starbucks experience, but you need both, I think. Totally different, but around the holidays, sometimes Starbucks is the only one that's open, so. Yes, and during a pandemic, I mean, those motherfuckers closed down. Yeah. And so, like, I, I eat all my food there. <laughs> so, <laughs> dude, like, like I was, I was always saying, like, what's that uh, Walking Dead? Like, like 
apocalypse movies are not accurate because during a pandemic, if you don't have a fat podcaster, like motherfucking pizza shit, this Starbucks fucking close it. You're like, I mean, I was just fucking dropping <laughs> F-bombs in the middle of the street because these people were, were closed. I was like, how dare you? You're my kitchen. You're my, I mean, you're my restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. You're my pantry. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, what, what's your opinion on things like, what? what's the one that just got unbanned from Twitter? Is it Babylon B or something? Oh, I don't. Oh, I, I think it's I, more I of a right wing. I don't know a lot about it. Yeah, so I think it's right wing thing, and I think it's pretty huge. And I saw this the other day, and it was bizarre. And I think it was they had okay. It's yeah, it is Babylon B, and it says AOC, the Ocasio Cortez person, lays wreath at her grave on January sixth. And I think like so. So it's just so right wing that it was so in the weeds, like so inside that I can't even. I kind of get it where what maybe she played the victim so hard that she's celebrating her death, even though she's alive. Like she literally like they had a picture of her laying a wreath at her home grave. Like, do you get that? And is there a, is there a danger in being so right wing or left wing of a comedy uh, periodical that people on the other side might not even get it? Well, I mean, uh, that, that's certainly true. I feel there's a definitely a, a history of, um, conservatives picking up onion articles and and thinking they're real you know like years ago there was one about uh i forget exactly the details of it but about somewhere somebody opened an abortion mall <laughs> <laughs> and some conservative like just started railing about this is how horrible things are becoming wow. um it i think with the the conservative side it's really diff they've tried they have tried very hard to do comedy. Uh, <laughs> they're, still, they're still trying. <laughs> well, the tricky thing is, like, we, if you have a more open-minded sensibility, uh, you're, you're punching up. That's the whole point of satire, is that you're, you're speaking truth to power. Yeah. So you're going after politicians, you're going after presidents, you're going after corporations. Um, a lot of the things that what happens with conservatives is like they're trying to get rid of social security and safety nets. So they're yep. going after hungry children. And <laughs> not really a good target for comedy. Yeah. And like the onion can pick targets and punch up on the left and right just as easily. And they tend to. Oh, like, and I, I think, think like they're just better. They're just better at it. And so like, yeah. why would you be trying to do something that we can already do? Because we have a relatively open mind when it comes to comedy, I would think. It's certainly possible. And, and, you know, I think Stephen Colbert does a good job of that, too. While mostly, you know, being on, on the left side, he will occasionally have jokes that go the other way. And that's totally fine. It's totally doable. But uh, you just have to know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess that comes, you know, you, you know what you're doing because you teach this stuff. So give me the one sentence version, the one sentence kind of resume of your, your teaching experience. But I know you teach both improv and sketch. And so the yeah. question I kind of want to ask is in that last little bit we talked about, I, I don't even you, know, you have to kind of have something that people on the left and right get enough to be funny to everybody. And so when you're writing and when you're teaching writing and when you're kind of writing on stage with stage brain and improv, like, what are you telling these students as far as you got to, they have to kind of get where you're coming from. They actually, you know, every joke has kind of a root and they have to understand the root. Like, it's like well, speaking in right. a different language. Like if they don't get it, it's like you're yeah. speaking in a different language, right? Well, you know, so, so here's, here's the thumbnail resume. So I teach at second city uh, and I've taught there for decades. I've never and heard of that. What is that? 
some people haven't. So in case wow. for anyone who hasn't, it's been around for over 60 years and it was founded in improvisation. And it's a, it is a comedy mecca in Chicago. Yes. Most of the folks you see on SNL went through Second City training and, and their resident stages. Uh, and uh, so uh, I went through Second City in the early 90s. I saw my first sketch review in high school and just went nuts for it. And like, I, I, as soon as I got out of college, I did stand up for a while, moved to Chicago, got involved in Second City, started a theater company, started teaching in Second City. I also teach at Columbia College, Chicago, which uh, has a comedy major. Wow, really? You can get a bachelor's degree in comedy writing and performance. And how recent was that? And was that you're doing it? Or is that the reason why they added you? Because they had to beef up uh, the faculty on that discipline. I think it's one that I already was teaching there. It's uh, it's relatively new, but I'm horrible at, at chronology. But I, it, it might be... Uh, might be going on 10 years now that we've had it. Oh, wow. I got to double check the dates on that. But After Aiden Quinn graduated, they're like, we need some people with a sense of humor. <laughs> we, we, did a, we need drama. to take credit for Andy Richter. <laughs> we need to take credit for these people. <laughs> um, but it's a great program. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I really enjoy teaching. I think it's one of the reasons that it's not the reason they hired me. It's the reason they kept me. <laughs> oh, good. Good, good, good. good. Thank God. Yeah. You need, you need as many jobs as you can if you're going to make a living teaching comedy, I would think. No kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, so I teach improv, I teach sketch comedy writing, I teach stand up, I also teach storytelling. Uh, kind of whatever, wherever they throw me is what I'll be teaching. And so, as far as teaching, kind of um, to make sure that the, the, the audience gets the, the kernel of your joke. Like, what are you teaching people in terms of kind of writing and writing on yeah. stage and writing for stage? Uh, I have two answers for that. So at the very basic fundamental level, say like stand up, <clears throat> you want to make sure that your your setup. Well, actually, this is true for sketch comedy writing, too, and in improv. You want to make sure your setup or your beginning is super clear, that people understand wh who you are, where you are and what you're doing. Oh. You know, so like in, in stand-up parlance, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Jack that's, that's the setup, you know, yeah. you're, you're setting up your joke and then the, the punchline is the twist or the payoff. Uh, the same with sketch and, and improv is like at the beginning of your scene, you want to set up, here's who we are, who's, here's where we are and here's what we're doing. And, uh, and then uh, the problem comes in or the twist comes in. And so and sometimes that's established through persona with stand-up or sitcoms. Yep. Sitcoms are so successful because we kind of already know these characters and we're so know these folks. Where they're so what's kind of an example of like, you know, if I'm telling a first joke, people don't know my persona yet. So right. and kind of, is this kind of the, the problem with why certain comedies or, or big budget comedies, I suppose, are so kind of like heavy handed on the character portraits? You know, uh, oh, like in, in Point Break, you know, then that's that's Bodhi. We call him the Bodhisattva. He's a, <laughs> he's a real he's a real searcher. He's even crazier than you, Johnny. Like like you know, there's really heavy handed heavy handed character setups. Is it so that we can quickly establish who these people are and get to the punchlines? Partially, I would think. Okay. I mean, uh, my uh, the the second answer to your question, the the kernel of it and this is like in the root of improvisation is that you want to exhibit relatable human behavior. 
So that's where people connect to you. That's where they're like, I can identify with you. Like you, you, you present something that's like, oh gosh, that happened to me today. Or, oh, I haven't even thought about that. Or, oh, I've done that before. Or if I were in that situation, I would do that. Um, So that's, so like in improv, especially, you're not trying to be funny. The humor comes from your character, your relationship, your emotional investment in an outcome of a situation uh, and commitment. There, there's there, there's the golden formula right there. Write that down. <laughs> Send me a hundred bucks, everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, like, is it more important than in your first couple of jokes on stage to uh, just almost be, you know, vulnerable and human? Like if they don't know your persona yet, it's like, well, at the very least, you're going to know that what I'm saying is, you know, you identify yeah. with it. You identify with it. So for the first couple of jokes, I'll be like you. But then when you hear the twist and you hear that I'm a complete piece of shit, then the next four jokes, <laughs> then the next four jokes, I can kind of play off that. Yeah, but maybe not a piece of shit. Maybe just, you know, odd or a, weird, a different way of looking uh-huh. at the world. So is there a problem? Is there a problem with being a piece of shit? Because, I mean, aren't, aren't there are, are there standups out there who, you know, have trafficked in being a piece of shit? Or are you saying it's more interesting? You have to be more interesting than that. You have to well, still, still be human and so odd or having a weird take on things like you can be a piece of shit as long as it's a manifestation of your unique and humane character trait. Uh, I think you have to find out what works best for you. Uh, and that's all trial and error, particularly in stand-up. Uh, and, but I think that's also true for improv. You develop your own persona as an improviser, too, uh, and as a writer. So here, this is a, here's an interesting thing. One thing I do once a month is I do a presentation on Zoom to a group of senior citizens in, uh, in Illinois. <laughs> I, I talked over that. What was it, Hamilton, Illinois? uh evanston oh evanston sure it's right by chicago up there in the purple yeah, just north of chicago and i've been doing this for about two years now uh-huh. and uh, yesterday the it's, it's it's once a month focused on a great comedian and yesterday we did don rickles <laughs> and uh rickles you know calls what he did attack humor yeah and uh and there's an interesting video online you can find on youtube where it's in the 70s he's sitting down and he's talking to like three uh professors, one a professor of psychology, one of sociology, and I think the other one's actually of medicine, and they're talking to him about his humor. And he and, he, and his bottom line is that he does it because it works for him. He discovered that doing regular stand-up that when he shut down a heckler, people roared. So the more <laughs> he, he insulted people, the, the, the funnier he got. Okay. He also may stress the point that he does not look at the audience as his enemy. He loves them. Uh, he does everything he can. He, when he does the, the insults, he's, he does his best to project that he also loves these people. How does he reconcile the two? I mean, how do, how do you do that while you're attacking somebody to stay kind of loving? Well, I mean, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the key is to that, cause, uh, I, but I think it's, it's more a way of being, and he was certainly successful at it. I know for myself, like I've been on stage before, and I have viewed the audience as enemies, and uh, those those sets didn't go so well yeah. so so he he tapped into his relationship with people and um was certainly successful at it he had his career was 60 years long yeah and the, i mean like how can you you know is somebody like anthony jesselneck or whatever like he seems to like his stuff is just so incredible i mean i'm sorry my incredible like unbelievable you know go from you know 
you know, when I, like, I don't, I don't recall, but I, you know, back when I wrote shitty comedy, like, like that, it was like, you know, it was so incredulous. Like from one moment you're having sex with a pregnant woman. So you could feel the, the soft baby skull that she's about to have, you know, and like the next minute you're doing this and people were like, dude, I don't believe you. Like in that one joke, you had a girlfriend that you're cheating on and now you're gay. Like, like, and so some of this stuff can be kind of incredible. And so how, you know, how is there any, you know, love with the audience there. I mean, he, like, I guess the out audience found him. Well, exactly. That's the unique, uh, unique, humane thing that he's projecting that gets people to kind of be on his side. Yeah, I, I think, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like, if he's if he doesn't have that rapport, then he's going to lose the audience. So I, I'm pretty sure that joke wasn't his opener. Oh, no, that was, yeah, that was something I wrote. And back, and back in the, like, and, and you know, it bombed because I was doing it in front of, I mean, it bombed horribly in part because everybody in the audience was also a comedian. And so they, you know, they were like, yo, like, these are just fucking jokes that will not do well in front of a normal audience because they don't believe a word you're saying. And it's mm. internally inconsistent and things like that. But even, I'm not a huge fan of his, but even, I reached out to him way back in the day when I was doing this. And he goes, I was like, oh, can I help you write some jokes? Because the jokes I was writing were like that. And and he goes, that's the fun part for me. And I was thinking, I can imagine that's the case because oh, yeah. before your audience finds you, if you're Anthony Jesselnik, like the audiences must be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, why do I want to hear this shit? I don't believe you. And um, so I'm just kind of wondering if there's any unique humane thing or whatever. But yeah, maybe he's just a unique case or whatever. Like, what are you seeing in your students you know, with their unique, uh, you know, talent or whatever that, you know, has you being able to predict if they'll do well? Is it just that they're hustling, you know, they're hustling, they're coming, they're trying real hard. Like you say, they're uh, doing a lot of practice and stuff like that and seeing what works and what doesn't. Is there anything that you can see in them right now while they're students at Columbia or Second City that kind of can be an accurate predictor of future success? Or have you whiffed on that? You're like, man, I thought, <laughs> I thought that Chris Farley was a real piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's pretty easy to whiff on it. That's for sure. Okay. Um, I think a lot of it is showing up. I don't think people realize how much hard work it is. And, yeah. uh, and that is actually something we run into in the comedy program at Columbia College. You get these kids right out of high school with dreams on being, being on Saturday Night Live. And, uh, and then they discover there's a lot of work to, you have to, if you're, especially if you're going to be a comedian, that's not just being funny. It's being a writer. It's being a director. It's being an actor. And, uh, and it's knowing your stuff. And, yeah. uh, and, and so there's, you know, there's certainly a drop-off rate a little bit. It's not huge, but there's a drop-off rate. People are just like, oh, I'm going to go study communications. <laughs> um, that's, the, that's the backup. I love that. But I think like it, there's there's people that that you just kind of do get a sense of, and it's like uh, they're the people that show up. You know, I think that's most of it. They show up. They they're ready to work. They're they're hungry. They they want to learn new things. Um, they you know some some students show up and they just want to get praise for showing up. <laughs> Which you know <laughs> I praise you for that. That's yeah. for sure. But <laughs> that's now you got to get a little bit more. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the least you have to do. And so kind of what are you seeing in terms of like being present? Like if, if their head is off in La La Land, you know, being, um, you know, not sitting there wanting to learn, is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, they could be crafting their persona as they speak. Like, do you not have to just show up, but do you also have to kind of what be collaborative as well? Because you know that yeah. in the future, you're going to yeah. be collaborating with fellow actors and fellow writers. Even if you're doing stand-up, you got you to gotta learn how to give and receive feedback yeah. Constructively, positively, yeah. 
and uh, and and work well, play well with others. Nobody wants to support you or be with you if you don't play well with them. So yeah. we focus a lot on on ensemble work in um, at Columbia, and but also at Second City. I mean, and and I mean, like I, when I did stand up, like I did stand up in the Cubby Bear, and I did really well. And then I went to one improv class, and I paid for the entire course, went to an improv class, and I was like, I'm never going back again because <laughs> it, it, it was the lack of control. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. fucking hate that. And so for highly sensitive people, like as I imagine if you're a loner or stand-up comedian or whatever, like how can you get better at receiving positive feedback and and how do you know when to take it with a grain of salt and stuff like that? Like is there anything stand-ups can like you know learn from oh, improv? Yeah. Is there uh, anything they can learn from improv troops as far as I, I don't know, taking positive feedback? Well, it's uh it's it, it really kind of goes before the feedback. It's like embrace failure. You know, dare to suck <laughs> because then you'll learn something about kind of um yeah i don't know saving it you have to be able to kind of rescue some shitty material and so failing can be a part of uh getting those reps it's how you learn it's how you you uh uh embrace taking risks or taking risks becomes more of a natural thing that you just do uh if you're always doing your funny voice and that one thing that worked that one time <laughs> yeah you're just playing it safe and you're not going to grow. Uh, growth comes from failing for sure. So like, yeah. So, I mean, I guess probably growth, growth in your career has kind of led, led you to where you were now. Cause I mean, did, you know, at the beginning, you don't think you have what it takes to be, you don't have the resume that it takes to be a teacher. And so like, but, but you've been in the thing for so long, probably doing so many things and meeting so many different people that ultimately teaching became what they kind of just gave you because you were, you were great at it or whatever, but kind of what did you learn? Like, you know, what were some certain growth, I don't know, learning opportunities that you took advantage of early on when you were like, oh shit, maybe I'm, I don't enjoy being a stand-up. I don't enjoy going to five open, <laughs> five open mics a night or something. Well, when I did stand-up, I was really uh, kind of lucky. I, I, it was like the uh mid 80s to early 90s so that there's a big boon in comedy then uh so it was pretty easy and almost too easy for people to become road comics oh. um, so yeah and you'd find those people on the road you'd have people who are doing original material and really trying stuff out and trying to better themselves and then you'd have people who were like hey uh, my friends tell me i'm funny at parties and they just get up and tell jokes yeah uh, so you see both of those happening uh, near the tail end of my stand-up career, I just started to get really, I just felt disillusioned. Uh, you know, the thing, I could see the, the wheels coming off the bus and then <laughs> decided I wanted, if I'm going to go up on stage and fail, uh, I want friends with me. Wow. So that's when I got involved at Second City and started to, to lean into improv and theater. I also miss theater. Okay. I mean, and so I guess my question is, um, because you also, like, improv is like, it's got to be as long as it's got to be. But I also kind of do some sketch. I do the character son's videos, which is like a minute long. And some of these That's SNL perfect. sketches I'm seeing are just fucking, I mean, some of them are hilarious. Like Night, Nice Jail. Have you seen Nice Jail with uh, Willem, no. Willem Dafoe, Cut for Time? I mean, it's got millions of views on YouTube because it's just so bizarre. He created his own Nice Jail because he thought the people in jail were mean. And it's the funniest thing because he mixes it with all these jokes about him looking like Dracula or something because he used to be that uh, vampire guy. But I mean, like some of these sketches, you're like, yo, this thing is five minutes too long. And so kind of yeah. when you're writing for sketch on stage, what's the sweet spot in terms of time? Because you are planning out a little bit about what points you want to hit during the sketch. Kind of what's yeah. too long and what did you learn as far as being too long and too short? It's, uh, you know, 
uh, SNL has a different thing going on because they have commercial breaks. Oh yeah. So sometimes they a sketch has to be four minutes long, and it stops being funny after three minutes. Really? So, yeah, you know. Can't they, they just, just have, like I don't know, just bring the commercial break sooner and then fit in another sketch at the end, or no? I, I don't think they have that flexibility, oh. uh, just because of the rigidness of broadcast television, and oh. uh, and and you know they're also dealing with full sets and props and you know yeah. uh it's not like a, a second city show where it's just six chairs and people are creating things with their hands out of air yeah so they get they got a lot of lot of uh, balls in the air so that's that's one of the reasons some of their sketches go too long which is unfortunate yeah um, it's okay wait, what's the sweet spot in terms of you know second city or columbia as far you know what is uh too long and too short for sketch well, again, it's like I don't, I, I don't think there is a an accurate answer. There's, okay. uh, it's like uh, you, you said earlier, like with improv, like it's as as long as however it needs to be. Yeah. Uh, I've seen great sketch reviews where they're you know quick little blackouts, you know, here and there that pepper it and get the pacing running, and then there'll be a scene where it's just two people and it slows down. It's a little bit more natural. Might even have a little poignant moment or two in it. And then uh, I've seen stuff, particularly if it's a two-act sketch review. In the second act, there's stuff in there that, well, my gosh, that could have been a one-act play, like yeah. a ten to fifteen-minute, you know, epic. And uh, but it was fine. Uh, I think it, 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 it's all devised work developed by improvisers, by an ensemble and a director. And uh, when you were te they test at Second City, they test stuff out from an audience every night. Okay. So if something's not working, they they change it, they change it, they change it, it's still not working, it's gone. Uh -huh. So they have, they have that luxury to keep polishing what's happening. Uh -huh. So, you know, I think it's whatever, whatever it needs is however long it should be. Okay. And so like to get all these lessons, like, you know, we follow, we follow them everywhere. It's joejames.net, it's joejames1065 at Instagram and Twitter. But if we want private lessons with the great Joe James and we want money, we want money going to Joe and not necessarily second city or Columbia, we're not getting our bachelors at Columbia and comedy. <laughs> How can we get private lessons with you? Are, are occasionally you posting a link to, you know, I'm doing a five class workshop on, you know, writing for standup or something like, is that going to be posted? on your socials well I, I i haven't done that in a long time uh because i'm so busy at second city and columbia college uh your best best way to reach me is the way you re you reached me brian go to joejanes.net and go to the contact uh form and then shoot me an email and we can chat he actually responds and I'm, I'm so glad he did because i learned so much as i knew i would joe james thank you so much for coming on thank you brian appreciate what you're doing here